morning, risers, and welcome to the show. We have a most excellent one for you today. Excellent, that's a new word. Fantastic is my go-to uh, description for the yeah, show. I like but, it when you uh, change it, Abby. We'll try excellent from now on. Brianna, what's going on? Well, we have Liz Wolf with us to discuss the IRS audits, and James Kerchik discusses the impact uh, Victor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, had on the CPAC conference. Plus, Devario Morrow discusses the weaponization of the FBI and U.S. intelligence agencies that black people have known about for years. But first, Newsweek is reporting that the raid on Mar-a-Lago was based on information from an FBI source. This confidential person somehow knew the documents uh, that Trump was hiding and even the locations of those documents to other anonymous government officials told Newsweek and was deliberately timed, so this was interesting, timed to occur specifically while Trump was not at Mar-a-Lago. According to Newsweek, the anonymous government sources say the raid was scheduled with no political motive from the FBI and was meant to be a low-profile event. Trump blasted the agency on Truth Social, however, saying, quote, the FBI and others from the federal government would not let anyone, including my lawyers, be anywhere near the areas that were rummages and otherwise looking at during the raid. Everyone was asked to leave the premises. They wanted to be left alone without any witnesses to see what they were doing, taking, or hopefully not planting. Why did they strongly insist on having nobody watch them? Obama and Clinton were never raided despite big disputes. I, like, I love that you added the, the Trumpian syntax there, Robbie. Thank you. Meanwhile, Politico fanned the flames of another January 6th event taking place, or rather their anonymous government source did. The unnamed congressperson warned that the GOP base has lost its mind, adding that if Trump decides to call them to arms, I think we could get another January 6th, according to whoever that is. Meanwhile, Steve Bannon discussed the deep separation between the far left and the far right. Let's watch. People in the middle kind of seeing how, how this thing plays out. Same thing in the Civil War. Any great effort always starts with a relatively small group. And look, we have, you know, I totally disagree with our opposition, but they are, they are absolutely believed to the core of their being that they're right and they're not going to give up. One side's going to win here and one side's going to lose. We're not going to all of a sudden have a great kumbaya moment and hug this out. You can't hug this out because we have two different ideas, two different visions of what this country is. Speaking of not hugging things out, CNN's Dana Bash and Tim Scott went back and forth politely, pointing figures at the other side over the issue. His information on the federal court's website, it was taken down. And look at that. It says access denied as a way to protect him. Should your colleagues, your Republican colleagues, tone down the rhetoric? Well, Dan, I will say that this is unprecedented, it's shocking, and it's disturbing from my perspective. What I said earlier, I think I was on another station, I said, I'm asking my friends on the other side, wait, don't rush to judgment. But this is without question a very daring and dangerous move on the Department of Justice side. I can't imagine them finding a smoking gun in the midst of what they're looking for through the Presidential Records Act. I'm stunned that they did it. You said the folks on the other side should uh, should hold off. It's the folks, some of the folks on your side, including and starting with the former president. He's the one who broke the news with a really incendiary uh, statement. Should they tone it down? Because I, I, there, there's potential for things to go south quickly. 
Both Republicans and Democrats are calling on the DOJ to release the information on its Monday raid. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said Attorney General Garland and the DOJ should already have provided answers to the American people and must do so immediately. So. Uh, from, my, from my perspective, the most interesting information in this Newsweek story was really the implication that, no, it was about this, these records, these, these classified records, these records that shouldn't have been taken. It was not connected to some uh, deeper January 6th uh, information search or something like that. That, that. No, what we know to be the case is actually the prime reason for the raid, which, and, and at one point, uh, yesterday or the day before, however many days this news cycle, <laughs> has lasted, there were people, and not just arch Republicans, saying that if it really is only about some misplaced records, this seems like a nothing burger and it's actually going to play to Trump's advantage. Yeah, it's difficult because you're right, it is unprecedented given the kind of minor seeming scale of what's going on. But if it is true that there are sensitive documents that potentially do, sorry, pertain to the events on 1-6, and that there has been some evidence that Donald Trump, despite his you know, statements to the contrary, was not cooperating, and per Maggie Haberman was destroying documents, or at some time did destroy documents. I wonder what you think the recourse should be. Is the rule that if you're the president of the United States, there is just nothing you can do about it if you want to take sensitive, potentially classified, maybe not, we'll find out, obviously, but potentially classified documents and destroy them, is the rule that the presidents are just above the law? Or should the rule be, fine, if you do it to Donald Trump, you should also be doing it to Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, whoever else comes down the pike? Well, and to that point, it was actually Donald Trump who signed, uh, the put into law this greater enforcement for doing exactly what he's been accused of doing now in the wake of uh, Hillary Clinton email, email gate, right. which is... Uh, which is Always a good lesson for anyone who wants to put more laws on the book to public uh, to punish their uh, their enemies, their opposition. These will always be used against well, you. Well, but the, the, a real point there is that so much of why presidents don't punish former presidents is not out of the goodness of their heart. It's not because they want uh, you know the consistency and ease of transition and all of those things that they talk about. No, it's because they know they're very likely to do similar things that could become under similar levels of scrutiny. So every president complains about the expansion of presidential powers of the guy before them and then does the exact same thing and never does anything to sanction the person before them because they right. want to have that, that same power. It's, a, it's, a, it's an institution that's always going to protect and grow its own power. And I don't know that as individual citizens, regardless of whether we're sympathetic with Trump in this instance or not, should be trying to ratchet the the balance toward more impunity for powerful people even if we are concerned that some people are being uh, more under scrutiny than other people on a political basis i mean certainly there should not be more impunity for powerful people powerful people in fact should be subject to to greater they, they should be the rule of law should apply to them even more because we've trusted them with this immense right. power. There's just such a difference, in my view, between holding the powerful accountable for, you know, for, for authorizing illegal drone strikes on American citizens yes. abroad or starting wars based on lies or massive financial wrongdoing or, you know, you can go down the line. And then at the very end of the line, there's like, putting a box of documents in the wrong place. Right, well, but I will you know say, it, I, 100% I agree, except for we have yet to find out exactly what sure. the content of the document. All documents aren't made equal. And if it, if it 
becomes true that either there's nothing there or whatever they were trying to target was also not substantive, then I completely agree that this seems like an, uh, an, an, an expansion of what is normally done in a way that's going to delegitimize the process and not actually be you know, uh, targeted to, uh, to achieving anything new. But there's still the possibility, and I think it is very premature to be presuming that this is a nothing burger, but there's still the possibility that you know, there was a goal here that matched the level of the intervention. Uh, and you know, we'll have to keep following the story to see what happens. It was also idiotic for the FBI to think that, oh, if we do this raid while Trump's not there, it'll be low-key, it'll be like nothing ever happened. Yeah. Like, what are they thinking? Well, partly because of the nature of Donald Trump, but I also just want to play that out a little bit. Is the contention that they should have gone when Donald Trump was home, that that would have been better for Donald Trump and his child? No, no, I'm not saying it, it was going to be a thing no matter what, but yeah. they were saying that maybe it wouldn't even be a thing. Maybe it would barely, wouldn't even reach the news cycle if we did it when he's not there. Well, this does remind that me a little really bit. That was really dumb if that was actually their thinking. Well, look, I think that it, it's, it would be naive for them to think it was going to go that way just because of who Donald Trump well, they're is. they're very naive. But I do think that there, this is, has some interesting parallels to Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan where some people thought, you know, yes, she is the highest official in X number of years to have gone, but it isn't entirely anomalous for members of Congress and other senior officials to take trips to Taiwan. What really escalated it was the uh, Chinese media official who blasted a Twitter, a tweet out saying, you know, China basically has the right to blow her out of the sky. This is unprecedented. <laughs> and that created a yeah. media cycle. So, you know, Trump is behaving similarly and I think has very astutely created a, a very sympathetic media cycle for himself out of this. Whether or not the, the FBI should have anticipated that, I think we both are in agreement of that and maybe it should have had, done a Perhaps better job of warning that, that off. Anticipated, yes. Critics of Hunter Biden were quick to point out the president's son boarding Air Force One yesterday. Some Republicans pointed to the FBI's handling of Hunter's laptop as a double standard after the raid. Now, of course, the only, the weird thing here is, so Republicans are simultaneously now saying, dismantle the FBI, take right. it down. It should not exist. Brick by brick, remove it. And the FBI needs to investigate Hunter Biden. Right. If you can't trust these people, this is, the Republicans trying to have it both ways or all ways. That like, we don't, we, with a party of law enforcement, we back the blue. You know, these are, these are good guys. Just a few bad apples. Uh, actually, it should all be just taken down. We dismantle it. We can't trust yeah. this entire agency. And and also, they need to go after Hunter Biden. Like, yeah, you gotta you gotta pick one of those stances, people. And I, it's I just suspect not they're not going to look. This is the subject of my radar. But I think that the Republicans have, have cottoned on to something kind of good right now, and, and it's healthy to have the skepticism of these institutions. Yeah, I'm more in the dismantle it. You know, when when the left, I'm sorry, when the left talks about things like systemic corruption, systemic issues, systemic problems. The word systemic, I know, has a really negative valence among many parts of the right. But what they're describing with the FBI, where it has systemically been used, uh, weaponized against opponents of the, of, of the state, since its very founding, when it was basically founded to attack uh, socialist and communist movements in the United States, mm -hmm. that is an issue. And there there could be, you know, short of dismantling, if you want to talk about And often it was Democrats directing the FBI against those. Not, not yeah, I mean, it was a it's a different political right. time where those labels switched and flopped a lot. But it was it, it's a conservative status quo enforcing um, institution it always has been. And Republicans have been supportive of it when they are members of the status quo and been critical of it now when they feel like they are outsiders. So the question is, are we going to have a real hard look at these kinds of institutions or are we both just going to cheer when our team is able to wield this weapon that nine times out of ten, regardless of what your mm -hmm. politics are, hurt 
working class grassroots movements and protect elites. Well, that, exactly. And that's what I was saying yesterday or the day before about how Republicans have voted for and, 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 and given more funding to all of these agencies that they now claim are ideologically against them, mm -hmm. all of the Patriot Act kind of funding, that the, the, the spying, the wiretapping, the, the, the harassing of, of conservatives or of conservative political figures like Donald Trump, all being done uh, under the auspices of, of, of things they authorized, things yeah. they voted for. Because national security will be unsafe if we don't have right. this level of government surveillance, right. government surveillance of it's people. It's quite the heel turn. But we also wanted to ask you about what you thought of Steve Bannon's comments there, uh, evoking the civil, a civil no. war, saying that there are two sides here that, deep, that believe passionately in their political perspectives and are not going to compromise. I wonder what he sees as those two sides that are uncompromising. There is nothing that makes me roll my eyes more than, uh, you know, from the, coming from the right than the civil war rhetoric because okay what are you gonna do dude like are you are you taking up arms are you gonna like it's well, a lot people, of it's a lot are. of tweeting well the, the people talking about it they couldn't get their greasy fingers off the twitter button <laughs> for five seconds to start a twivel war it's, it's just a, it's just it's just talk probably there has been reporting that right. you know I, I was watching, you know, bipartisan, different different channels, and I, I was looking at MSNBC's reporting after watching a lot of Fox News reporting, and they were talking about going to the same Reddit channels in online uh, context where a lot of the 1-6 planning and conversation mm -hmm. had been, and many of the same actors who were involved and present at 1-6 are apparently speaking in similar kinds of terms about doing something in response to this, you know, FBI raid. And so I do think even if it's not necessarily the same people who spend as much time on Oh, oh no, no, do, don't get me wrong. It, it, it's irresponsible and it, it can produce some kind of organizing that spills out into violence. I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm saying it's irresponsible on their part and it's never, these people don't participate in it. These Anderson people are goading, uh, I mean, this is kind of what Trump did on January 6th mm -hmm. himself, like goading other people to like, yeah, yeah, go, you know, take up arms, you know, do something ridiculous. And then all you do is get those people in trouble. It accomplishes nothing. There's yeah. not going to be an actual, like, an, a, a civil war of consequence that is going to change the direction of our country or our government. There's going to be, at most, you get like Proud Boys and Antifa fighting in the streets of Portland, like that kind of thing. The, the, it's LARPing. It's live action yeah. role playing. That's all this rhetoric is. This rhetoric is encouraging that kind of thing, which is not a viable solution or means for political change whatsoever. Yeah. So it's just stupid to be talking about it. Well, and as a populist, it has frustrated me that someone like Steve Bannon, who has really been flying that populist banner for the last five years or so, is going to talk about how there are these intractable divides in American society. Whereas from my perspective as a left pop, uh, populist, there is so much that is agreed upon that goes ignored because there are these elites that are stoking exactly the kind of cultural battles that Steve Bannon is stoking here. And imagine how powerful it would be if there were someone with his platform that was speaking to the reality that both people like Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and Joe Biden should be doing a lot more to actually improve the lives of the people who are considering potentially reacting in the way that they reacted on 1-6. Mm. Indeed. Well, it looks like we're going to continue this discussion for Your Radar, Brianna, and that's going to be up next. Brianna, what's on your radar? Well, Robbie, I have a message for conservatives. You're kind of right about the FBI. Look, we have yet to receive very much information about the contents of the FBI's warrant to search Mar-a-Lago or whether it was politically motivated. 
but concerns that state police agencies could be weaponized against vulnerable parties for political reasons. It's a well-founded one. The left has been warning about this for a very long time, as establishment liberals and conservatives alike have a long and sordid history of using the agency power of the deep state to dis disrupt organic social movements, murder revolutionary leaders, and disrupt American citizens exercising their right to organize politically within grassroots organizations. My only quibble with conservatives is this. I just hope you're as concerned about these issues and skeptical of these law enforcement agencies when less powerful people are at issue, especially when less powerful people are at issue. In fact, when you look at history, this Trump raid is just the tip of the iceberg. The FBI wiretapped Martin Luther King's phone calls, tried to blackmail him by disclosing his extramarital affairs, and sent him an anonymous letter suggesting that he kill himself. After making his I Have a Dream speech, the FBI domestic intelligence chief wrote a memo saying, quote, we must mark him now if we have not done so before as the most dangerous Negro in the future of this nation. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was apparently terrified Dr. King would align himself with the Communist Party, something that, of course, was well within Dr. King's rights to do as a free American citizen, but which was made all but illegal under the authoritarian anti-speech witch hunts of the 1950s and 60s. Perhaps you caught that Hollywood has even given silver screen treatment to two instances of fascistic authoritarian FBI activity in just the last few years. Judas and the Black Messiah followed the story of how the FBI infiltrated the Black Panthers with a counterintelligence officer, drugged activist Fred Hampton, and extrajudicially murdered him with the help of the Chicago Police Department. Law enforcement sprayed over 90 gunshots through the residential apartment. Of the raid, FBI uh, Special Agent Greg York later said, quote, We expected about 20 Panthers to be in the apartment when the police raided the place. Only two of those Black MFers were killed. J. Edgar Hoover was also tracking Elvis Presley. Intelligence files show the state considered Elvis a definite danger to the security of the United States because of his ability to, quote, arouse the sexual passions of teenage youth. The FBI also maintained files on Frank Sinatra, Jane Fonda, Groucho Marx, Bob Dylan, Michael Jackson, and others guilty of such insidious proclivities as race mixing, condemning establishment politics, and critiquing the massively unequal distribution of wealth it protects. And you're not safe just because you're anonymous. A 37-year-old wiretapping and civil liberties report conducted by Congress found that the FBI were surveilling American citizens. And just this past July, this past July, an elderly American activist and member of the African People's Socialist Party had his home raided by the FBI. He was zip-tied and asked to sit on the curb like a criminal before being named as an unindicted co-conspirator in a, quote, Russian plot to undermine democracy. Are you an agent of Russia? Please. I mean, it's a really insulting question. Yeshitela is a lifelong activist and is the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. And now, in the eyes of the U.S. government, he is an unindicted co-conspirator in a Russian plot to undermine American democracy. And he put a zip tie uh, on my wrist, and um, they wanted me to sit on the curb. He has not been charged, but his home here in St. Louis was raided by the FBI in late July.
some people see it as a badge of honor to be attacked by the United States government when you're involved in the struggle for freedom. It's attacked every struggle for freedom. Mandela was a terrorist. Uh, Martin Luther King was spied on. The Justice Department alleges Yanoff funded a campaign run by Yishatela's group in 2016. I can't even entertain a discussion seriously about Russian interference or something. I'm an agent of Russia. I've been doing this all my life, and I've been doing it all my life because of America, not Russia. Before I ever met a Russian, this is what I was doing. Russia, Russia, Russia. Where have we heard that before? Here's a fun fact. Later in that CNN segment, the journalist alludes to the fact that President Reagan accused anti-nuclear protesters of being infiltrated by Russians, as though Russian involvement changes the obvious calculus that denuclearization and ending the Cold War was a good thing. Uh, so, by the way, is international solidarity between working people. That's a good thing. But this is what they do. Everything contrary to the interest of the establishment is Russian disinformation. They did this during the McCarthy era. They did this during the civil rights movement. They did this to Bernie Sanders after his big establishment threatening Nevada win. And they won't stop doing it until voters stand up. And this is an important point for conservatives who are maybe just now waking up to the danger presented by the deep state and liberals who might be quick to dismiss it. Counterintelligence operations, or COINTELPRO, has had a specific target over the years. Yes, Trump has been implicated, but historically the vast majority of those targeted have been on the left. Because I would argue that's where the real populist threat actually lies. FBI records show that 85% of COINTELPRO resources targeted such subversive groups as communist and socialist organizations, civil rights organizations, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the NAACP, the Black Panther Party, the American Indian Movement, Vietnam War protesters, the National Lawyers Guild, women's rights movements, Puerto Rican independence movements, and United Ireland. A mere 15% of the FBI's energy went toward far-right targets, like the Ku Klux Klan. Your tax dollars at work, ladies and gentlemen. Your government has been spending 85% of its surveillance dollars making sure that Martin Luther King was killed before he could successfully launch his, launch his poor people's movement, while only 15% was focused on actual white supremacists. That tells you everything you need to know about who the government fears and where the people's power lies. And it's not necessarily on the right. It's with movements that are poised to return power to you, not protect the status quo. Now, none of this has to be this way. Like so many authoritarian government agencies, this one is relatively new. The FBI was founded in 1935 and perhaps not so coincidentally was founded at the peak of American labor power and union organizing, a time when left-wing organizations like the Communist Party were so powerful and were able to exert such influence on the population that FDR was forced to pass sweeping social programs in the form of the New Deal in order to appease movements that wanted much, much more. It's because of communists that we got the 40-hour work week, minimum wage laws, child labor laws, and more. Those were compromises, the compromise position. Hoover was the first FBI director, and he, was, he reigned for 37 years until his death. And during that time, he abused his power, violating the laws the FBI was ostensibly established to enforce. 
The FBI harassed political dissidents, blackmailed high-level politicians, and used its power to advance its own anti-democratic political goals. I'd argue that almost 100 years of that behavior is enough. Now, despite the FBI being obviously bad, conservatives have historically defended it due to the socially conservative base that defended the Vietnam War and which took every opportunity to hippie punch and derail the equality movement that threatened the status quo. The right also celebrated the FBI as it investigated Hillary Clinton for her emails. Let's not forget that. Listen to how different Trump sounded when the FBI's actions were more convenient to him. The FBI has just sent a letter to Congress informing them that they have discovered new emails pertaining to the former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's investigation. And they are reopening the case into her criminal and illegal conduct that threatens the security of the United States of America. Now, more recently, the liberal establishment has decided it agrees with 2016 Donald Trump that the FBI is good, actually, because it has been critical of Donald Trump. But let's be very clear. The FBI is bad, actually. And liberals, just because Marjorie Taylor Greene agrees with you on this, doesn't make that fact untrue. Marjorie Taylor Greene has become America's favorite broken clock. And it's that time of day where she's regretfully 100% right. Now, I don't take her critique in good faith. I don't expect her to keep this up when a candidate of her liking is in control of the deep state, but you should. Her hypocrisy doesn't have to be the hypocrisy of the average conservative voter. Remember, the FBI is an organization that told MLK to kill himself while failing to investigate Emmett Till's murder. It called off the investigation of the white supremacist church bombing that resulted in four little girls being murdered in their place of worship and spends resources instead surveilling Muhammad Ali and raiding the homes of elderly civil rights activists. The FBI is bad precisely because it has always been, always been a political weapon. And if it turns out it's being weaponized against Trump, that is a real problem. But it would also be one of the only times the FBI has gone after people with the power to actually defend themselves. Let's keep this abolish the FBI energy up the next time they come after normal Americans too. People who aren't billionaires, people like you and the folks that you love. Yeah, we're on the same page here. Uh, like I've said a couple times now, uh, I wish the Republican outrage about the FBI's behavior um, and just law enforcement in general Let's keep that momentum going. Let's uh, actually reform it because they have harassed more than just Donald Trump. They've harassed people you've mentioned and, uh, you know, then countless other people whose names are not important or famous names uh, who we don't know of, um, which is true generally of, you know, law enforcement in general, right? The, 
the the grandmother whose whose door was was broken into in the middle of the night by a SWAT raid that had the wrong address, the you know all of that kind of stuff that goes on routinely, not routinely. FBI, but uh, lo local law enforcement. Well, they often work with they work law enforcement, as they did in the case of Fred Hampton in the Chicago Police Department. And in cases where you want law enforcement to be doing something, and in, in you know, so many of these mass shooting incidents, there was there was reason for FBI, for the FBI or for law enforcement to know something. People people informed them about, hey, this person is really dangerous. They're they're stockpiling weapons. They say crazy things online. They they have actually made violent threats. They put a gun to a family member's head. Yeah. Uh, you know, visit their house and do something. And maybe they visit. Maybe they do something. They they don't. Well, they look don't at do the enough. distribution of resources. Look, yeah. this might seem overly cynical, but it really does feel to me when you look at how the FBI was established, when it was established, and what has it has devoted the majority of its resources to, it is not an anti-crime organization. It is an establishment protecting organization. We, there's been a lot of conversation about uh, IRS audits and all of these kinds of things. What a lot of left activists have been arguing for very, very many years. It's not the just abstraction that cops are bad and law enforcement is bad and all of these things, but that these agencies are generally created and designed to protect the status quo, to protect elites, to police disproportionately in certain kind of areas, in certain kind of communities, to create a mass incarceration uh, crisis, to put people in jail who are politically inconvenient, who you don't want to be at the polls, et cetera. That is the concern that we've been having for a really long time. And I'm just hopeful that this is uh, this moment offers an opportunity for conservatives to understand that this isn't some culture war battle where my dad's a cop and I like him and you hate my dad because mm -hmm. he's a cop. No, there are. It, it's not about these kind of interpersonal disputes. It's about whether these systems are being optimally designed to protect our broader American community. Right, and that these systems are not uh, sufficiently responsive to uh, political forces mm -hmm. and thus democratic incentives. That these are institutions, these are bureaucratic institutions that grow on their private. own, mm -hmm. and right, and that have interests and 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 forces and powers at work within them that are not being directed by by the by the representatives and thus by the people, yeah. but you know by their own initiatives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, we've got some updates on gas prices coming up next, so stick around. Viktor Orban, the Prime Minister of Hungary, was once an anti-communist leader in the liberal student movement in the Central European nation. Since taking up his role as PM in 2010, he has strongly embraced nationalism and right-wing identity politics. Not only have Hungarians overwhelmingly gravitated toward Orban, but many conservative Americans have too. He was a marquee speaker at this year's CPAC in Dallas, and even right-wing figure Steve Bannon has called him, quote, one of the great moral leaders in this world. Here to discuss how the autocratic leader is gaining prominence among American conservatism circles is author of Secret City and a journalist, James Kerchick. Jamie, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. So you wrote uh, a piece, I believe, about the right, the American right's sudden love affair with Viktor Orban. Can you uh, tell us more about you know this evolution occurring on you know, what some describe as the new right or the the national, the NatCon right, and why Viktor Orban is is now a a figure that they revere? Well, you know, Orban has really been ahead of the curve on a lot of these sort of global issues that have really attracted. Um, the nationalist right, you could say. 
um, particularly on issues of national identity, borders, um, anti-immigration politics. He, uh, you, you mentioned Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon actually referred to Orban as Trump before Trump. Uh, and Orban was reelected to be prime minister in 2010. And really since then, and I've been following because I was, I used to live in Europe and I was following him for quite a long time. He would say things and then, you know, a year or two later, maybe even three or four years later, you would start hearing them being spoken of by other right-wing politicians in Europe and then crossing the Atlantic here into the United States. Um, I think what was disturbing about this visit here was that just a couple of weeks ago, he gave a speech in Romania where he spoke out against race mixing and went on at length about why he didn't want Hungary to be a nation of mixed races. Unless there be any real confusion about what he was referring to, he, he praised uh, a notorious novel from the 1970s, a French novel called The Camp of the Saints, mm -hmm. which is a very dystopian book um, about the future where Europe gets basically overrun by a horde of you know, brown and black migrants from the global south who basically take over Europe and rape all the women. Uh, and he praised this novel. And so to see him then invited to CPAC just two weeks later, I think was a little ominous. Uh, it's, it's interesting to consider how all of the uh, European immigrants that populated CPAC would respond to the implication that they are a horde that has invaded the United States of America to such deleterious ends for the local population. But never mind about that. What is the response to this? Because there is this kind of um, cognitive dissonance in the United States where there is a you know strident insistence from many sectors of the right that whatever kind of explicitly racist, white supremacist, uh, you know, sentiments exist among their ranks. They're niche. They're fringe. They're not mainstream. Uh, the you know the idea of being accused of racism has, in and of itself, taken its uh, a whole light. Where uh, you know you're not, you're basically not able to do it basically without your own credibility becoming impugned, no matter how explicit the instance of racism is. So when moments like that happen, when Orban is kind of very openly embracing things that people are only in a mainstream context in the United States dipping their toe into, what is the response? Well, you know, it's interesting. Orban didn't mention that at all in his mm. speech. And in fact, in the article I wrote, I said he reminded me a little bit of Yasser Arafat, who used to say, you know, very anti-Semitic things in Arabic to his people. Mm. But then he, would speak, then he would speak in English and speak of peace with Israel and whatnot. And it was kind of similar with Orban, right? He gives this speech in Hungarian a couple of weeks ago where he's denouncing race mixing and praising this novel. But then he comes to CPAC and there's no talk of that. In fact, the only talk of it is um, he prefaces his speech by saying, oh, they, they've called me a racist just like they call you a racist. Mm -hmm. And so he was very in tune with, with the audience. And I actually spoke to a couple of CPAC attendees, including some you know, non-white people who were there. Um, and they were basically kind of fed up with this accusation that the Republican Party is racist, that Trump supporters are racist. They think that this is basically a liberal media tactic, um, that they'll be called racist no matter what. There was one woman I spoke to who's Hispanic, and she said that this is like the boy who cries wolf, this racism accusation. Um, so it's an interesting uh, dynamic. And I think ultimately what they were... Uh, allying with Orban on or what they what they uh, sympathize with him with is uh, this issue of immigration 
And you know, during the European migrant crisis, he put up a fence very early. He emerged as the most anti-immigration leader in Europe. And another interesting thing that happened, and again, this is me sort of telling you as someone who's been following Orban and seeing how prescient he is, the biggest applause line was one attacking gender ideology. Uh, the line was um, explicitly, uh, mothers are women, fathers are men, leave our children alone, end of story, full stop. That got a standing ovation and the loudest applause. Mm. So, you know, he was reading the audience. I think he knows that, you know, this is becoming an issue on the right in the United States. But I'll tell you, he's been talking about this gender ideology stuff for four years. They banned gender ideology um, in universities in Hungary in 2018. So he's very, it's strange that someone from the old world, right, you know, Europe, would be ahead of the curve, I guess, on political trends. But that is what's happening, um, at least in terms of the American new right. So a, a lot of the American new right is, I think, um, excited uh, that Orban in Hungary has the power and the ability to do that. And then I hear from you know many Democrats or liberal or mainstream media writers writing about how you know he's governing as he's a total autocrat. He has you know high, d democracy is dead there because he's so hijacked um, the process. Is that a is that a valid criticism? Is it as dire as um, as the sort of progressives, American progressives are making the Hungarian situation sound? So I think two things can be true. He is ruling in a somewhat authoritarian way in terms of the judicial independence, media freedom, the sort of merging of the party, his political party and the state. Um, all that has been trending in a bad direction and Freedom House um, ranks the country as partly free. They actually downgraded it from free to partly free. And I think it would probably qualify as the most um, you know, unfree country in the European Union. It is a member of the European Union, but it's been obviously moving in a bad direction on all those markers over the past couple of years. That said, he is genuinely popular and he has won re-election um, with pretty, you know, resounding majorities um, each time since he's, since he's been elected. So I think both of those things can be true. What is a little worrisome uh, is that I think this is partly why the right in the United States likes him. And you can see this dynamic in our own country, particularly with, say, the reaction to this raid on President, former President Trump's house a couple of days ago, where a lot of people on the right are now saying, look, there's no neutral state anymore. All these institutions have been hijacked. You see this use of the, of the word regime with a capital R that people on the right are now using to describe the American government. And so I think they look to Orban as saying, look, this guy took the reins of government and he's not letting them go. And that's basically what the left has done in America, and that's what we need to do in response. And yeah. it's basically becoming a, it's becoming like a zero sum a zero sum perspective, which I think is very dangerous in a democracy to have that perspective. Yeah, Jamie, how Jamie. do people wrestle with the inconsistency between there being such an emphasis on anti-authoritarianism and free speech? among the right here at home. Free speech has been a really driving motivator for a lot of this, yeah. these cultural movements. And the or authoritarian actions taken by Orban, I mean, banning an entire discipline of study in universities doesn't seem like the most uh, intellectual, dark, webby uh, approach that one can imagine. Well, you know, I think this is a bipartisan problem. I think there are actually very few people who support free speech on principle. Hmm. And we see this, you're absolutely right, with the right, you know, in certain states, red states, right? They're banning books that they don't like, while at the same time, 
decrying left-wing cancel culture and wokeness. But that said, look at the left in America. The left used to be the real supporters of free speech. But once, unfortunately, over the past couple, you could say 10, 15, 20 years, they've basically taken over the academy, uh, mainstream media, Hollywood and whatnot. Once people get into power, they don't really want to support other people's free speech. It's, it's free speech for me, but not free speech for thee. So I think this is a big problem on all sides of the political spectrum. Um, and there are very few people who are actually principled on this, unfortunately. Jamie, is there a difference, though, between laws promulgated to prevent people from studying what they want or read what they want and people who maybe just organically win the culture war? So I might not love, for example, that uh, you know, more, you know, Donald Trump became president representing a, a large chunk of you know, Americans' preferences, but that is what it is. I wouldn't deny the reality of that having happened. You know, obviously, there are political views that I hold. I'm a socialist. I don't expect everyone to agree with me. I don't think that capitalist running America is, you know, some, you know, plot. I'm not prevented from being a socialist and articulating my views. So far, at least at this stage in American history, I'm not prevented from doing that. And I think that there sometimes can be a kind of a false equivalency between liberals having won the culture wars over the last 20 years and now swinging more to the right, and these literal laws that are being promulgated to prevent people from articulating their preferences if they fall out of step with a, a more conservative majority. Is that a distinction without a difference? Well, look, yes, the, the First Amendment, as we know, applies to the government, right? It applies to the government not being allowed to infringe upon someone's speech. And if there are red states, say, that are um, red state governors, perhaps, who are, are, who are doing that, that would be a pretty direct and clear violation of the First Amendment. That said, I think there's a broader culture of free speech, which is really important to protect. And it might not be illegal what is happening in, you know, liberal run institutions like universities or say the New York Times. But I think it's just as bad for our culture. Um, so it might not be illegal when say a um, speaker is shouted down in a university or if the universities are like 96% Democrats, if you look at professors, right? That might not be illegal. It might not be a violation of the first amendment of, of our constitution. I still think it's a very worrisome cultural trend, and it's something that I think we should speak out of, speak out to what, against. To what do you attribute that? Do you think that there is a um, a failure to allow conservatives to advance within the college context, or because I'm curious, because there are some interesting parallels here between this and the way that some conservatives talk about diversity initiatives, and they say, well, if there's some professional arena where black people or Hispanics or Asians aren't represented, maybe it's because they just didn't self-select into it, maybe it's because they aren't good enough. You know, what are you gonna do, force the FBI, uh, sorry, the FBI, that's what on the brain, uh, force the NBA to be X percent white just because it doesn't reflect the balance of America? And you get those arguments a lot from the right. But in the context of education, there doesn't seem to there, there seems to be a different kind of belief that there, the lack of representation of certain kind of conservative beliefs in certain institutions, and I think that's not widespread. There are many conservative um, professional, um, sorry, ed educational institutions, and that most of the elite educational institutions are in fact very conservative where it matters in terms of their legal and economic. Um, philosophies that they adopt and promulgate to their students. But regardless, do you think there's um, an inconsistency there between a belief that we shouldn't basically do affirmative action for racial minorities in one context, but there should be an affirmative action for a political 
um, minority in the university context? Well, I don't think people should be discriminated against, obviously, for their race or any immutable characteristic. But I do think in intellectual environments, it is important to support intellectual diversity. Um, and I would actually think that that's more important than diversity based on race or gender or sexual orientation or those immutable traits. I think it's more important to have people of varying views and belief systems and backgrounds, class backgrounds, certainly. Yeah, I'd agree. Do, but the question is this, do you think that they don't exist in, educa in educational context because they are being thwarted and kept out? which is the argument that people of color and other historically marginalized groups have been making about these other contexts? Or do you think, as the right has argued in these other contexts, that it's a self-selection bias and that a lot of conservatives aren't trying to become a certain kind of professor or go into a gender studies department or uh, become constitutional law professors or whatever, whatever the argument is or whatever the context is? Within the academy and higher education, I think it's been so degraded since the 1960s. Um, and it really has become a club and if you don't meet the sort of ideological requirements um, of these university departments, which are left-wing, then you have no hope and you have no future. And so you just don't even see people of not just conservative d dispensation, but even centrist or sort of old-fashioned liberal dispensation seeking academic careers in large swaths of the academy because they have no chance. And so they go into other fields or they go to think tanks. That's really why think tanks started. I mean, they were mostly conservative in the 1970s and 80s because you had all these conservatives who couldn't get jobs in academia. And I think that's bad for everyone. I think it's really bad for our country that academia has become so one-sided. And so, you know, I look at Hungary and Hungary is basically becoming a right-wing version of this, right, where the media, um, the academy, basically all the institutions are being overtaken by this one political party and this one leader. But Orban um, bans gender studies, right? And there hasn't yeah. been a left-wing banning of any discipline in the university context. No, that, that's explicit. the distinction I'm making. It's, it's not explicit. That's the difference. It's not explicit. But try getting a job. Right, uh, but in, it, in a legal idea. prohibition it's, against studying something is, I would argue, is a pretty big deal, right? As opposed to, you know, people not having an interest in the thing that you're... Sure. Selling, yeah. Last, uh, I'm not, last. I'm not, I'm not here to draw a moral, a moral equivalence between what's happening in Hungary and what's happening in the United States. By no means. Um, I actually think it's worrisome that there are right wingers looking at Hungary as a model. Mm. Um, well, and that's what that's what I wanted to ask you, um, Jamie. Do you think there's a danger uh, for setting aside the moral or philosophical danger which we've discussed? quite a bit. Is there a tactical or strategic danger? Because I note, for instance, that now the Republicans' chances of taking back the Senate are suddenly starting to look worse uh, with the elevation of, uh, you know, Republican figures who are kind of in a Orban sympathetic or, or a mold, your, you know, your Blake Masters, your J.D. Vances, those kinds of characters. Um, is there is there a warning to uh, to conservatives to uh, to Republican activists that you know by embracing these these very far right type people um, they're actually going to lose or they're going to lose elections that they should be winning easily? You know what I think I haven't mentioned this. One of the other reasons why they really loved Orban at CPAC he's a fighter, right? And that's that word. Why do people why why do Trump supporters cling to him? Because he's a fighter. Uh, he stands up to the deep state, to the foreign policy blob, to the fake news media, and now they're going. Now they're going after him with the FBI, right? 
And Orban is a very similar instinct. He stands up to the EU bureaucrats in Brussels. He stands up to the globalists. That's that word that connects all these um, sort of new right people around the world is the globalists. George Soros, obviously a major um, bone of contention uh, and, a, and a mutual villain of both the CPAC crowd and Viktor Orban, Soros being a Hungarian, um, and Orban making Soros into this you know, devil incarnate figure, again, before the right in America adopted that opinion. Um, so I think now you have, at least among the CPAC right, they look at Orban uh, and they love him because he's a fighter, because he doesn't apologize. The first words out of his mouth, I'm not a racist, you're a bunch of liars, you're the fake news. And I think that's what they like in Kerry Lake. That's what they like in Blake Masters and J.D. Vance. And they're willing to overlook these, um, or overlook, they embrace these these attributes that mm. you know, people like myself find somewhat disturbing. They see them as uh, positive characteristics. Mm. Well, Jamie Kerchick, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Americans are generally split on whether they're concerned the IRS will increase audits, according to a new Morning Consult Politico poll, with 45% of respondents saying they are very concerned and 56% saying they're not at all concerned. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre pledged to reporters that the 80,000 new agents hired as part of the Inflation Reduction Act will conduct no new audits on anyone making less than $400,000 a year. Let's watch. Who around here decided that Americans we're crying out for more interaction with the IRS. I, I don't understand your question. You have to say more. Do you think it's going to be popular when the 87,000 new employees hired by the IRS go around and start auditing people to pay for the Inflation Reduction Act? So it's very clear. Uh, the IRS commissioner was very clear on this. He said that on, on the record that this only will, it will only apply to those earning over $400,000. This is not about folks who make less than $400,000. So no new audits on anybody making under $400,000 no. here? Very clear, no. Joining us now to weigh in is associate editor at Reason Magazine, Liz Wolf. Welcome back to Rising, Liz. Thanks for having me. So you probably, like myself, uh, see IRS audits in our nightmares, and I have to imagine uh, you have some concerns about this hiring move. Well, I mean, the good news is they're gun rights supporters. You know, there's a whole bunch of armed IRS agents who carry guns. But uh, the bad news is, yeah. <laughs> right, I mean, because IRS... that, you're talking about the applications for these. Uh, yeah, go, go into that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, these are armed agents of the state, ultimately, at, at the end of the day. No, but I think I think we have a lot of reason to be very skeptical of the claim that audits or audit rates won't increase for the poorest among us. When you look at the way the IRS sort of currently performs, one of the big things they do is correspondence audits. So these are basically mail-in audits. They're typically assigned to pretty low-level, unskilled agents. And they typically target uh, earned income tax credit recipients. So people at the very, very bottom of the income hierarchy, households making $20,000 a year or less. ProPublica has actually done some really interesting research, and they found that I believe in 2018 and 2019, the audit rates of households making over $5 million a year and the audit rates of households making under $20,000 a year were actually converging. Those audit rates were becoming very similar over time. So I think it would be foolish for us to assume that drastically increasing IRS manpower wouldn't fall on, on the poorest among us. 
So Liz, it is absolutely a significant issue that the overwhelming majority of audits are targeting people of low-income backgrounds. When you look at maps, comparing a map of where low-income people live and where audits take place, that is absolutely true. The purpose of this uh, new IRS funding is, in fact, to rectify that. Uh, the number of employees being hired, there is this implication that they're all auditors that are being hired, but only a fraction of those are actual auditors. It's a lot of tech support and other kinds of things that are supposed to bring the staffing up to where it was about 10 years ago before the uh, IRS was defunded by conservatives. In the last 10 years, since the IRS was defunded by conservatives and the number of auditors shrank, this is a quote, uh, the largest corporations in the United States with over 20 billions of assets have their audit rate go from nearly 100% to 50%. So the rich people are being audited less as we had fewer resources in the IRS. Uh, that's from Janet Holtzblatt, a senior fellow at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. She goes on to say, among wealthy individuals who had a positive income of a million dollars or more, the audit rate fell from 8.4% in 2010 to 2.4% in 2019. So my question to you is, um, is this an indication that actually hiring more support for IRS, uh, the IRS, you could bring the tax, the audit rate of those affluent people back up to where it was a number of years ago and have the resources to keep them from focusing on lower level, um, lower income people who have the easier cases. Well, a few things to that point. <clears throat> One, I think it's really uh, worth it to be specific when we talk about defunding a specific agency. This is something that I think conservatives need to be more charitable on when they're talking about the left, because so often they say, you know, the left wants to defund the police, when in reality, um, that's that's not a very uh, accurate and honest representation of what people on the left are trying to do. So I also want to apply that same sort of intellectual consistency and, and honesty to uh, the IRS budget being slashed. Uh, it was not totally entirely defunded, but you are correct that conservatives have in general over the last 10 years slashed the budget, I believe by to the tune of 30% or something like that. So I just wanna be precise with the, the degree to which uh, something has been defunded because I think this is something that people on both left and right frequently get wrong and it makes our politics more toxic when we uh, are imprecise about that. I do think your point that they will not, that the IRS won't solely hire agents who will be conducting correspondence audits and in fact might be able to better focus their resources and better allocate time and talent, that's a fair one and that very well could be the case. One thing that the IRS has, has uh, mentioned that I think a lot of conservatives have missed or misrepresented is that you know some amount of manpower will allegedly be devoted toward customer service uh, and improving people's access to getting an IRS agent on the phone and actually explaining the process and making it so that they're interfacing with government agents in, in a much more efficient and better way where they can actually get their questions answered. So I want to be very clear, that is a possible outcome of this huge hiring push. There is also some opportunity for the IRS to be better at allocating the agents that they currently have and to do a better job of sort of refocusing. Uh, and, and since this is all in the limelight, choosing not to emphasize those correspondence audits that are hitting the poorest people, but instead trying to really focus on the highest earners. That is very well something they could do, but again, we have to consider that the richest people are those who hire teams and teams of lawyers and accountants and are historically very good at uh, finding oftentimes legal loopholes to evade taxation. And so I think it's important to consider how this is going to realistically play out in the world that we currently live in. And I think we have really good evidence from the last 10 years to indicate that that might be the case. 
Well, an Associated Press fact check of critics of the Inflation Reduction Act took the side of Democrats on the issue. Fact checkers say the 80,000 new agents will not target middle class taxpayers, citing a lawyer for the Treasury Department as their source. Which, right, look, I think there's some degree to which we don't know exactly what the impact of this will be. It could be, it could honestly be, from my perspective, that the bureaucracy just, just, you know, absorbs this new influx of employees and enforcement doesn't change in either direction as much as anyone expects uh, because there's not a whole amount of, uh, a lot of accountability thing, Robbie, for it. Of course, there's a certain unknown built into everything, but we do have evidence from what happens when 10 years ago we had the number of employees that is being that are being funded and advocated for now and whack back then 10 years ago before these cuts happened we had rich people being audited at double the rates they're being audited now that's what we know so more agents historically has literally meant within the last 10 years double on the rich people and not the consequences on the poor people that people are talking about right now. So it is a little a little confusing why the, the, the presumption seems to be. And I understand why people have concerns and people should be, you know, there should be transparency and all of that. But it's a little confusing to me why there is this presumption that by restoring the agency to the point it was 10 years ago, you won't also be restoring the doubling of audits on the affluent. And I also don't don't understand why there isn't more scrutiny about why it is that conservatives are pushing a defunding of the IRS when they quite obviously uh, the affluent corporate elites that are pushing for these policies aren't quite obviously pushing for policies that benefit themselves as the I, mean, I don't have much in interest kind of to be bracket. frank in bogging down the wealthy in audits as well I, it's harder for for working class people and but Robbie, poor you just people made but the I point don't that they have a lot of money to avoid their taxes. And that's right. the point here is that they're not trying to bother them. They're I don't trying fetishize to be harassed. the paying of taxes in general. We should reform the system, <laughs> okay. make it, make taxes, I mean, lower the tax burden for everyone, I, make it simpler. I mean, this is a topic I've covered pretty extensively for reason. Uh, you know, we can sort of talk about the category of the working rich, you know, the households making $400,000 a year. Um, honestly, we're in the midst of like a physician shortage right now. We're in the midst of a pilot shortage. Uh, in terms of how we want to incentivize or disincentivize hardworking people who are who are less likely to be welfare recipients, I think there is actually a fairly good case to be made. And of course, I feel this way. I'm a libertarian uh, for trying not to hit for like households making four hundred thousand dollars a year with uh, incredibly cumbersome audits. I mean, these are people who, in general, have greater access to lawyers and accountants who can help them. Uh, find the most advantageous way to take advantage of their situation. But I think it's also worth considering that, you know, maybe we don't want to be super punitive toward them. Maybe we don't want to be bogging them down with a ton of audits. I think it's fair to say, okay, well, how many people will be disincentivized from pursuing the professions that they want in the long run if they know that those are ultimately going to be things where more and more of their money gets taxed away and potentially they're targeted for audits at a much higher degree. Well, I'm not really pilots, sure that we want to be targeting the poor yeah. and I'm not really target, sure we want to be targeting the working rich. Probably all of us qualify as the working rich to some degree. Lots I, of people I do not make $400,000 a year, but not, I will not, say, and neither do pilots, not, not I, I will level, say. But I'm saying like successful people in media and journalism and especially a dual income, dual earning household, it's really not that hard uh, for highly educated people. We were talking before this segment about how you went to Harvard Law. How many of your Harvard Law classmates 
you know, 10 years and they down should, the road. They should absolutely pay their taxes. The question here isn't whether or not people should be punitive or punished or harassed by an agency. The question is whether or not people who, to a point both of you have both made repeatedly, have the means to avoid their taxes and, how, and hire liars, uh, lawyers. Brilliant. <laughs> 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 hire lawyers. But you're to, just talking in your radar minute, about hire, how. Wait a minute. If I could just finish this point. They are able to exactly do what you guys say and hire professionals to allow them to pay not their fair share while poor and working people are paying disproportionately large parts of their salaries. They should have to, the focus of the IRS should be on them and preclude them from being able to do this. This is not a punitive effort. This is an effort to get people to literally pay what they are owed under the government. And whether or not you believe in taxation, if we're all having to pay taxes, they shouldn't have to pay less taxes than the rest of us just because they have more money. And resources. The way to change that should be through uh, eliminating the current legal loopholes that exist. Agreed. Not via this uh, newly empowered audit army. I think both need so to happen, and the, the tax code needs to be simplified as well. I think the mechanism by which this is done matters, and I have a lot of problems with the mechanism that's being proposed, which is hiring 87,000 additional IRS agents. They're and not frankly, agents. We got to be careful about that. It's IRS employees. Okay. It's employees, not agents. Some unknown Tech, number computers, of computers, those agents. kinds of things. Yeah. Some unknown number, I mean, I was advocating for being precise about talking about defunding earlier. Like, I think it's important for our position yeah. to go both ways. And I frankly. appreciate that. Um, but I, I mean, let's be very clear about this. This is not the appropriate mechanism for which this to be done. And frankly, legislators are obfuscating on the point of the degree to which this will be targeting uh, households earning $400,000 or less per year. There was a provision sort of considered a, a fig leaf provision in one of the earlier drafts of this legislation, which was voted down in the amendment process. And so now people are sort of wondering, okay, well, what exactly is the current status of this? Because, you know, Biden's press secretary keeps saying one thing, but that provision has actually been removed from the legislation. So why are they saying one thing, but then doing something different in the actual bill? What's I think it's really important to resolve those things about, about the degree the degree to which uh, households making $400,000 a year will be targeted by the newly hired IRS employees. So that there's a provision that specifically says what? That the rate of auditing in that bracket will remain consistent and that was removed? There had been a provision saying that the intention is not to increase the audit rate or the number of audits in that bracket. Uh, and that was included in the Senate draft, I believe, but then it was removed upon further review and is now long, no longer present. And yet people keep claiming that conservatives are overreacting mm. or being confused and concerned about this. There's mm. a little bit of an inconsistency. And I think, uh, you know, people would be well served by being very clear about what they're trying to do because, you know, we're working through the democratic process and it's important to actually understand what's in this legislation. Mm. So that's mm. a concern that I have. And I would appreciate clarity from the Biden administration on that. Mm. Well, Liz Wolf, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you guys. More rising right after this. Gas prices have finally fallen below $4 a gallon nationally after peaking to $5 a gallon in mid-June. This follows a global decline in energy prices and offers a sigh of relief to many Americans who are feeling the pain at the pump. Vice President Kamala Harris made remarks on the country's economic status. Let's take a listen. This work will mean more jobs, more job security, and better pay. So the president and my vision for the future also means lowering costs for Americans. Today we learned 
that last month our economy had 0% inflation. In July, we saw a drop in gas prices and a range of other goods like clothing and airfares and household appliances, which means more money in the pockets of working families. Combined with the fact that our nation created more than half a million jobs last month, it is clear that our nation is making progress. Well, the rate of inflation dipped slightly from 9.1% to 8.5% in July, and yet President Biden had this to say about the issue. Actually, I just want to say a number. Zero. Today, we received news that our economy had 0% inflation in the month of July. Though the price of gas has eased, the price of groceries and energy costs have not. According to the U.S. Labor Department, grocery prices rose from June to July and are now 13% higher than they were last year, marking the largest increase in food prices since 1979. Energy prices also continue to rise. Mm. I filled up my car mm-hmm. yesterday. Um, we, my wife and I call our car baby because we're childless millennials. Uh-huh. Um, the, is baby uh, eating good? Is baby, is <laughs> baby was eating thirsty. you at a house and home right now? Uh, yes, because despite this uh, supposed drop, it, the drop has not hit uh, the nation's capital yet. Mm. I paid four eighty nine, uh, okay. which hurt. Which hurt. Okay, so look, there's a lot. But, uh, of, but you're ready. To, I know you're ready to stick the IRS here. on me anyway, but. Uh, that's for paying just your taxes. Kidding, just kidding. <laughs> yes, I, I very controversially believe that everyone uh, who has more money should pay as much in taxes as people who have less money. But look, I would think uh, I think but, there should also be equivalent tax money paying. Just not, no, I. You know what okay. I mean. This is We're that, off that's track. another segment. Look, I, I think that it's interesting to see the ways in which, even though gas prices have come down, other kinds of costs have not. Even though the argument back at the time was, oh well these food goods and services are largely expensive because of the influence of oil and energy prices. Now, it could take some time to trickle through the system, but the, the argument that a lot of leftists were making was that in addition to having to raise their costs or legitimately raising their costs because of supply chain issues or the cost of gas and these kinds of things, they were also um, engaging in a degree of price gouging. And some of Biden's earlier policies, although I think largely ineffectual, were aimed at trying to have anti-monopoly uh, effects on some of the big meat markets and things like that that were very clearly driving up their profits, uh, prices rather, to take advantage of the broader discourse about how we're in an inflationary moment, costs are high, therefore they have an, 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 a right to do so. It will be interesting to see if any of these food prices start to come down and actually track the lower cost of goods as the world starts spinning its wheels again or whether or not they're going to continue to keep prices high and I think really tell them themselves telling themselves in the way that left has been saying for a long time that so much of these cost uh, increases are not, in fact, about increased cost of goods and services to manufacturers, but in fact, them just trying to extract more from well, the Well, and if the, if the prices don't change significantly, will that then say that actually the major problem is what a lot of people, what I've said and I think you've said to some extent, is related to the massive uh, uh, shocks to the supply chain system and also to the ongoing, to to the Russia-Ukraine aspect of all this, which is not resolved whatsoever. And in fact, we're continuing to to fund a non-conclusion too. So if they don't come down, that will show that that actually is a a significant part of the problem. Well, let me ask you politically speaking, you know, gas prices might not be $4 in Washington, D.C. Sorry, baby, but 
they are down across the, the country. Um, you know, the president and vice president are making representations about inflation being down. Do you think that this is a troubling moment for conservatives who were perhaps hoping to be able to exploit this economic crisis going into midterms on top of no some doubt. of the things that you've said before. No, I absolutely agree with you. I, I think no doubt. Uh, you know, it matters when the when when the the apex of the bottom, if that makes any sense, when the worst moment hits. If it hit, if this had all hit what we've endured kind of, I guess, this summer, first half of the summer, if that was happening September, October, November, I think you'd have a very different uh, you'd have a, a better Republican outcome. And also, I, I mean, I've said it before, but the Republicans have some really bad candidates mm -hmm. uh, for their Senate races. I still think the Republicans will take the House. I no longer think the Republicans will take the Senate. Um, I, I think the Pennsylvania race looks pretty bad. Dr. Oz is a very bad candidate. Um, Arizona looks like they picked some of the some real crazy people. Jan Brewer, the former governor of Arizona, who at the time, as she was governor in, I believe, in the aughts, mm -hmm. I remember her being considered to be like this hardcore right-wing immigrant, you know, anti-immigrant figure. She's what qualified for very conservative back in the day. She said yesterday that she doesn't think she can support Carrie Lake or she needs to hear <laughs> more and more from Carrie Lake that's not crazy. She said something to that effect. Yeah. That's a sign of that, like, if you're too far right for, for what was considered extremely conservative back then, I mean, that's, that's a warning sign. And, and so Carrie Lake could affect the Senate race. Uh, so that dynamic is playing out in addition to, yeah, things are not going to be, it looks like, and this is a good thing, that things are not going to be quite as bad in the fall as they've been for the past couple of weeks. And yeah, that's going to impact, uh, the, I mean, there's, you know, some overreach perhaps on, uh, on abortion, if not the Dobbs decision itself, then states I mean, look what allowing in Kansas, states to, a conservative state that overwhelmingly voted to vote down right. an amendment that would have made uh, abortion illegal in the state. Right. You, you have to recognize the reality of political strategy, no matter how you feel about it. You should never commit the pundit's fallacy of thinking, like, oh, everything I want is popular and everything's going along with my team or mm -hmm. my... No, never, never going to make that mistake ever again. Yeah, I, I, I rely on polls <laughs> to prove that everything I want is popular. All right. Well, meanwhile, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm, my former governor of the great state of Michigan, offered this advice for those who still think gas prices are too high. Today, your price of gas here, I think, is on average $4.51. That's huge savings to not have to do that, to be able to use electricity. In fact, the difference um, can be about, I don't know, $40 per fill-up, maybe even more. So depending on where you are, the bottom line is the cost of riding all ends for an electric vehicle, especially when you buy the models that are lower, that are more affordable, is a huge savings for you. She's doing a Tesla commercial, another yeah, well, Tesla commercial. I, I mean, I remember yeah. from her tenure as governor of Michigan, which I resided in at the time, she's all about green energy, environmental subsidies, all those things. Um, they're her favorite stuff. Well, look, here's here's part of Teslas the are great. Issue. Can't get very hard to get one. Very that, expensive to buy. Exactly they're not available. Don't know what <laughs> don't know what you're that, supposed to do. That's exactly the problem. People have been pointing out in the new Inflation Reduction Act. There are these tax credits for buying electric vehicles, and there are no vehicles on the market that are qualifying for those tax credits at present. So there's a really cart horse situation here. Elon Musk has been weighing in and saying some things that are also undermining people's confidence in these new technologies, at least the kinds of technologies that he's coming up with to get us out of this. There was a recent admission that he was promoting his uh, underground tunnel 
contraption. Do you remember this? He, he was promoting an underground car road, basically, that people made fun of and said, well, that's just the subway. You know, you're reinventing the wheel here. If you could drive scooters on it, I think okay. it would be Well, Elon Musk has now admitted that he was promoting that policy because he was against, he was just trying to thwart uh, public transportation uh, expansion in various cities because it's not good for him financially, politically, as a business owner. And I think that's part of the problem when you rely on these individuals who are looking out for their own personal profit and rely on the profit motive to solve some of these big um, infrastructural problems that we have to deal with as communities. Well, as the profit motive also then running up against you know, lobbying the government to give subsidies. I mean, it's it's not. Well, yes, that's the problem with people who are extremely affluent. I I don't think I I believe. You know, I'm an MMT. I'm a monetary modern monetary theory person. I don't think you have to uh, tax to spend money. But the reality is, taxation is important because it is important to take some of the money out of these super earners, these billionaires who have the ability to, with that money, exert undue political. But the government has massive power. Like what? But what Michael Bloomberg did was to literally use his own billions to buy his way into a. debate stage and into an election. Right. But if the government has this massive power to restrict, to hinder, or to help uh, not just certain sectors of the economy, but individual firms, then you will create an incentive system where these billionaires, instead of using their money to create better products to to compete in the market uh, productively, they're instead channeling that power to control the government to change the rules or harm. So the incentives are bad because of the government. Elon Musk intentionally tried to derail public transportation development because the government was regulating Elon Musk too hard? In what way was the government regulating Elon Musk too hard? Giving him more tax write-offs so that people buy his cars? No, that's an an example. If if the government can give subsidies to certain industries, massive subsidies, then the firms will disproportionately spend their influence and their capital trying to lobby the government or take control of it in order to get those subsidies, where if they all just have to compete, then they just all compete. I I, I think that's a little bit, you know, in my humble opinion, I think that's not exactly the chicken and the egg. When you have a profit motive, which is how our legal system is explicitly structured, which is how our, you know, there's something called the business judgment rule. There, there, there's, uh, there are reams of corporate laws that basically say, if what you're doing was calculated to make the business profit, you're not liable. Because the liability comes when you haven't been, you know, supportive to shareholders, not when you've done, you know, that the idea that you're supposed to protect some other constituency. So because of the way that everything in our world is structured, the profit motive is king. And people like Elon Musk and any business owner are going to go along and try to do everything they can for their own personal and Enrichment. And that is f- fine and good, and I understand that most people are watching our capitalists, and they think that's the way the world should because go. The profit but we have a government pre- put toward productive ends. But we have a go- frequent on its own. Sure, we have a government though, because we have recognized that to live as a community, there's some things that the profit motive doesn't capture, and that is why our founding fathers made the right to incorporate, which as a right that comes from the government, and says, okay, we can't raise large enough monies amounts of money, so there's some things the private sector should do, but there are other things that we absolutely have to do, build roads, bridges, infrastructure, make sure that the mailman goes out to your house, even if you live in a rural community, even if it's not profitable, because that's how you have that you have you grow a society. And the point the only point that I'm making here is that people like Elon Musk who are operating on one axis of personal profit are going to use their extreme wealth and authority to undermine all the public services that are designed to make to, to accommodate the areas where Elon Musk won't accommodate. And that is a very dangerous world for us to be in. Well, if I could buy a, uh, a, a green baby, maybe I would, <laughs> a, uh, but uh, not available on the market right now. So it's not a great solution to our problems. More rising right after this.
Our next guest, Dario Morrow, is out with a new op-ed in Newsweek magazine. In it, he argues that the GOP is learning what black folks have known forever, that the FBI can be corrupt. Darvio writes, quote, many conservatives are now learning how easy it is to influence, corrupt, and weaponize law enforcement to target citizens whose views they don't approve of. While shocking to some, none of this is new to those of us who are aware of the full, non-sanitized history of the FBI. Darvio Moro is CEO of FCB Radio Network and co-host of the Outlaws Radio Show. Welcome back to Rising. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're so happy to have you with us today. And Brianna talked about this a little bit in her radar, and I completely agree. But, you know, lay it out for us. What precisely are conservatives learning about the FBI? Um, I think, you know, in their in their view, obviously, they believe that this this raid was and a number of other uh, things that the FBI has done in the Trump era have been politically motivated, have been uh, designed to target uh, political groups or, or individuals who have views that they disagree with. And the point in the piece was just to kind of, you know, point out like this in some communities, the FBI has always had this reputation. They have a long history of doing things um, against the law, above the law, you know, against individuals and groups, you know, that they deem a problem. Yeah, you are seeing now this weird uh, alliance of political interests and responses to this particular event. You have uh, Candace Owens, I believe, tweet that we should abolish the FBI. You had Marjorie Taylor Greene saying we should do the <laughs> same. Uh, and you yeah. have some liberals who have now decided that the FBI is good, actually, because it has in its sights a target that they don't like in the form of Donald Trump. You know, what would you say, what would your response be to liberals who say, you know, this is not the time to be aligning with uh, kind of distasteful bedfellows on the right, especially since people like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Candace Owens and other conservatives who are just now criticizing the FBI might not be doing so in good faith. Well, I think part of the issue is this this is the stuff that, that the regular American people, they hate, right? Like at the end of the day, right is right. I'm, I'm for what's right, no matter who it benefits, right? So at the end of the day, we know the history, especially if you're black, most of us know the history of the FBI and the things that the FBI did to, for example, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X or the Black Panthers. You know what I mean? We we know the history there. So it's absurd to me to want to then become fans of the FBI because people you don't like don't like them. It's that's the the whole like political maneuvering, that's the stuff that people hate. Yeah, my concern is that people don't like the FBI until it's the FBI going after someone like the Black Panthers, who some conservatives, you know, there was an argument recently about whether or not some of these, you know, black equality liberation groups should be put on terrorist watch lists along with the KKK and some of these white supremacist organizations. There are, you know, obviously plenty of people on the right who would characterize Malcolm X as a, a what do they call it, a subversive uh, that should have been wiretapped and should have been monitored. And obviously the origins of the FBI have a lot to do with uh, kind of anti-communism and suppressing left political movements like socialism and communism, which I can imagine a lot of conservatives saying, well, that was good. They were the good guys then. How can you 
start to thread that needle and explain to folks how to get a certain level of institutional consistency here and to understand that the institution itself is a problem even if you like the tar if you don't like rather the particular target well i think a lot of people are learning now that if you give a government institution certain power they will use it and they may use it against people you don't like today but it could be you tomorrow and so i think you do see this conversation among some elements of the right that are like you know what maybe we shouldn't have a national police force maybe we should limit this thing to the the issues that the federal government must deal with and then rely on uh, state police or local police to enforce other federal laws and i think this is a, a perfect opportunity for, for principled people on the left and principled people on the right to have a conversation, people who actually believe in stuff. I'm not talking about the sycophants. I'm not talking about the brain-dead partisans. People who actually believe in stuff. This is a perfect opportunity to have a conversation about, yeah, you know what? They might have a little too much. Well, and isn't it really a lesson about how these agencies serve their own ends? They, they serve, you know, they're working with Democratic aims or Republican aims when the, the institution itself thinks that's in its best interest. But overall, right. the institution is serving its own interest. These are, for all of these agencies, FBI, Homeland Security, other agencies are, are they're their own beasts by now. They're massive bureaucracies that are only distantly accountable to political forces and very not very accountable at all to the American people. So they're doing what they think is in their best interests, not really, sir, it's, it's ideological from their standpoint, but it doesn't easily necessarily fit a political narrative because they're, they're doing, you know, they want to survive, they want more funding, they want more flexibility and freedom and power. That's true for our law enforcement. That's true for, you know, our public health bureaucracy. That's true. We're finding, yeah. or we found, found out during the pandemic the ways in which that was true for our public health bureaucracy. You know, it's true all the way down. So I would hope this is a moment, you know, to, to not, not go really a deep state of sorts obviously that terminology can be used in ways that is too conspiratorial but it is not it is not wrong to say that these agencies take on a life of their own they're so vast that does not uh, properly serve either really partisan political purpose but is its own entity absolutely i think if you those of you who are watching who are uh, nfl fans you've heard the term protect the shield right mm -hmm. which is the idea that the only thing that the nfl cares about is protecting the shield protecting the the brand, if you will. And so I think a lot of our uh, uh, federal organizations, they're not necessarily uh, there to serve the public. They're there to protect their shield. They're there to do what's in their best interest. And understanding that, you know, us as the American people have to say, okay, well then we need to kind of rein this, this power in a little bit. Because now you see a long history. No one can no one can deny it. It was easier to deny when the FBI was only going after 12% of the population. But now that you pissed half of the country off, now we can have a conversation about maybe they have too much power to begin with. Mm. Mm. Yeah. No, very true. Very true. Darby Morrill, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to ask you yes or no questions. Please just answer yes or no. Ms. New, do you believe the federal government should reinstate any federal mask mandates, for example, on airplanes? Yes. 
Do you support ongoing mask mandates on public transportation like subways and buses? Yes. Should the COVID vaccine be required for public school children? Yes. Mr. Jones, same questions. It's gonna be tough for me to remember all three. Do you believe the federal government should reinstate any federal mask mandates, for example, on airplanes? If, If public health officials determine that that's appropriate, then yes. Do you support ongoing mask mandates on public transportation? Yes. And should the COVID vaccine be required for school children? Absolutely. Ms. Simon? Yes, yes, and yes. Ms. Rivera? Yes to to all of the above. Ms. Holtzman? Ditto. (laughs) And Mr. Goldman? I'm not a public health expert. I would follow the public health experts, but I do believe that every uh, every child in, in school should be vaccinated. We have to follow the science. This is uh, debate footage for candidates running for, I believe, New York's 10th Congressional Congressional District. And apologies for the quality of it that was recorded on a phone. Uh, Unanimity of thought there. uh, No disagreement. I I guess you could find a little bit of disagreement between people who are the the candidates just saying yes, absolutely to all those things. And then the candidates saying yes, presuming that's what the public health officials want, which I actually find to be even more of a cop out because... What if the public health experts as d- disagree, as they do disagree on these things? And what you have no, you think you have no political, like your job is just to follow whatever the, the health officials say. I mean, what about all the times the health, well, you're not exercising any independent judgment for whether you think these things should be required based on what public health officials say. It's very frustrating. I mean, I, me. I think there's a, there's a line there. Obviously, I would also want to be for, informed about what the public health mm-hmm. officials say. I understand the frustration with some of the inconsistency that has come from public health officials, and I have agreed with a lot of that criticism here in the context of this show. But I don't know that I agree that it's a worse answer to say I want to be more informed and not just sit I would here not as a lone a, human being. A, a, a <laughs> senator or presidential candidate saying I would I would bow to the whims of the national security experts on whether to get out of Afghanistan. Well. I, I, I do put somewhat more faith in public health experts than national security ex- experts, in part because public health experts are as diverse as my friend who's a doctor or my own physician, mm-hmm. things like that. And that is what I rely on when I'm making my own decisions. I definitely am looking to people who know more about public health than I am, regardless of whether or not they're institutionalists like uh, Anthony Fauci. I do think that part of also what might be motivating some of them, at least it's what would motivate me if I were in that position, is the fact that advice is changing over time and can be difficult to keep up with, I wouldn't want to commit to something if public health officials did revise some of their past advice and did acknowledge mistakes in the past. I would want to make sure that my position was flexible enough to evolve as evolve as we learn more about various vaccines, what their efficacy is, the efficacy of masks versus mm-hmm. filters versus other kinds of interventions. What I'm really struck by in that clip is how ineffective that kind of format is and unpacking some of those issues. Yes or no answers don't really get to the bottom of the concerns that I think everybody sitting up there knows that the population that they're hoping to govern has. Well, and the 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 yes from all of them on frankly, even though you know I, I personally uh, find the mass to be the, the most um, uh, frustrating uh, or, or difficult to follow mitigation, that's for me personally. I must concede, and I can't believe any of these people didn't raise or disagree the fact that the vaccine for uh, is not doing very much at all, um, possibly less than the, in fact, 
quite likely less than the mass, or at least the very durable mass, to to keep down spread. We, we know now that being vaccinated is, you know, not we've talked about on the show a thousand times. Um, it, it, I, I don't hear anyone making the argument, the counter argument, or even saying, trying to claim that it is the case. The vaccines are not stopping the spread. You can you can be vaccinated, contract COVID, spread it. Uh, you know, at best, we're looking at in terms of spread. It does, right? Of course, still helpful for severe disease in, especially in immunocompromised or older people categories. Um, you know, at best, maybe it's making you less sick and then you're less contagious for a, a period of time. But there's significant, seems to be significant asymptomatic spread anyway. Yeah. So, like, so I can't imagine requiring this vaccine for children for. In terms of not wanting to have outbreaks in schools, you know, like all, all the other vaccines that we're requiring for schools, it's because we want to stop the outbreak of that kind of disease. Yeah. And, and that's mm-hmm. how those vaccines work. And that look, I wish it was otherwise, but that's just not the way it is in this case. So the fact that they and they all just gloss over that they didn't even acknowledge it in that. And, yeah. and maybe the format so, doesn't. Re- yeah. You know, well, one, one answer that I wish politicians would get a little bit more comfortable with saying is I want to do what works. And unfortunately, while we a lot of us thought that. vaccinations would have more of an effect on transmission than it does, they don't. And in fact, masking, if not done with a certain kind of mask and not done consistently, has a diminished effect as well. So if it's possible for the ages where it's appropriate for people to have high quality masks available in schools, I support that entirely. I would leave the vaccination decision up to the parents, although I would strongly encourage it because especially if your kid is in a high-risk category. I want them to have good outcomes if they do get COVID. And I would also like to talk about interventions that are not sufficiently talked about, like ventilators. And so to that Mm -hmm. end, I wanted Mm -hmm. to uh, share this study on schools uh, that indicated that um, there was a very good effect of other kinds of interventions, including ventilations. Quote, this effect was even more pronounced among staff where lifting requirements. uh, Sorry, this is is about... um, uh, the, 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 actually the effect of masking, masking in school. So like we were saying, right. um, you know, not all masking is made, made equal. Uh, yeah, this study was a very favorable result from masking. Right. Uh, this and, is a study from, um, well, I, I saw it, or you shared it in, in Slack for us, but I, I know this, uh, this epidemiologist, Eleanor Murray, um, and she's, she's a very, you know, I've kind of disagreed with her judgment in the past, but she's a very pro-masking individual. And this is a study. Now, it's a preprint of a study. It's not been peer-reviewed yet. It was looking at um, school districts in, uh, I believe, in Boston. I'm looking at it. It was in Massachusetts. And uh, they compared, uh, yeah, it was Boston. They compared a, a, a Boston versus Chelsea. They compared um, a, a, a district where they stopped enforcing mask mandates and a district where they continued to enforce them. 2021 to 2022. And yeah, this found a favorable result for continuing to have mass mandates. Now, you know, I people I think I think people should take that with a grain of salt. I've not yet seen any pushback right. to the study. So, it, so very very specifically, um, were lifting requirements, lifting the mask requirements was associated with an additional 81.7 uh, percent, uh, I think, incident of COVID, COVID-19 cases per 1,000 staff over 15 Not percent, weeks. I think it was 81 cases. Or, uh, okay. Okay, sorry, the, the, the stats are a little bit jumbled here, but there was a significant uh, reduced incidence of COVID in the context of masking. So I want to ask you, Robbie, like, what do you make of that if we're continuing to get evidence that assuming that the masking is implemented correctly, as uncomfortable as it might be to you, would you support, you know, schools or other kind of environments requiring masking 
in order to keep the incidence of COVID spread down a great deal. It was especially noticeable this effect among teachers who are going to be more vulnerable given their age and the likelihood that they have other kinds of um, uh, health issues. I mean, the, my frank honest is no, I wouldn't require them even if it's found to have some uh, health benefit. Um, I why I'm, I'm curious to see you know, more informed people if they can find some pushback to the study would be that it would surprise me if, if uh, a result this good for the mass was found, given that we're still talking about. I presume that it's because I, I don't think any school districts required the better quality masks. So I'm assuming the masks in contention here are, the, are just whatever masks you can find. So it would actually surprise me if they had this good an outcome maybe it is the case that would that would be i think that would be actually reversing even what some public health officials now are saying about how good the cloth masks are um, oh, yeah. so i i, I want to know more about yeah what quality masks are being used but you know this they write in the study the conclusion masking is a relatively low cost but effective intervention and look i'm just going to raise again masking is not a low cost intervention for everyone some some kids have much a much harder time understanding when masks are being uh, worn um, if they're learning to read, if they're, you know, hearing their, everyone, classrooms can be chaotic places. It, everyone in, when you're talking and you're masked, instinctively does the, well, I didn't hear you, and then pulls down their mask to, to, to be better heard. It's not, like a, it's a not thing. Not everyone. Look, and that's why I suggested that a response would be, that I would give, is that, again, depending on the age and appropriateness and the quality of the masks, of course, I would recommend that people do what they can to keep the, their teachers and their community members safe. But we, we've recognized the benefits of one-way masking now, and I, I think it is absolutely appropriate. It should be an individual judgment. All of these things, in my view, should be individual judgment. If you, if you determine for yourself that you should wear a you should wear a high-quality mask all the time and you should really not remove it, and that's what's best for you, you should be able to do that. Can I ask you a, a question? Do you think that um, prohibitions against uh, smoking indoors were wrong? Do you think we should still be able to smoke everywhere like we used to? I think in private. No, in restaurants, because the, sure, the argument. Sure, I would allow it in private restaurants. What, what, yes, what I would allowed be against it? smoking bans on private property, sure. You, so what, what motivated, what the, the hook was for smoking bans was the idea that the people who worked in these, in, these establishments mm -hmm. didn't have the option just to opt out, and that it was a, a workplace safety issue. Now, you can say that that was a pretext or whatever, but that was the hook, and I wonder if you agree with that and then feel similarly about teachers who are in the situation where they can't avoid but i think if it's a pu public school it's, it's different it's a it's a we have more right to uh we as citizens to prescribe what the rules are going to be for a public institution so we can i, I think it's a little different for employees there in a private setting no i would leave it i would let the employer set those rules um and if you're an employee who doesn't like those rules you should work elsewhere different in my view, for the public space, a public school being a public space where we are prescribing what the rules should be, there I, I, I have more, yeah, well, there should not be smoking in, in schools. I don't think um, at this stage of the pandemic, mm -hmm. given that we do have vaccination and you can, you can vaccinate yourself if you're, a, if you're a teacher, if you're an older American, if you're an immunocompromised person, and you can wear a mask yourself, um, that that overrides the rights of of the individual, of the students, to not get vaccinated or to not wear a mask if it's uncomfortable for them or they really have trouble socializing wearing them. So in that case, I don't think the balance 
tip. And, and honestly, I would be surprised if the benefit even tips as far in the direction of this being beneficial as the study suggested. But I, I note that it is a study strongly going against you know, what I, I was seeing from the, the data so far. So we'll, we'll see if it, it holds up. But, and I think you were going to say earlier about the having better ventilation. You know, let's do yeah. that. Let's have better ventilation. Let's... Well, that requires more funding. This is the problem. I do think it's well, a, got a problem. Tons of funding. I think it's a problem that the state has said you have to take the vaccine. That is a cost only to you mm-hmm. and your kind of personal liberty and your bodily autonomy and not emphasize the kinds of things that require interventions on the behalf of the government that are much more substantive, like retrofitting all of these schools, which are long overdue for having better ventilation because of the amount of asthma that's in dust and in the health issues that have already come even before COVID. They don't want to do that, so they put it on you. I do think that masks are in the middle. I think that masks don't require the kind of um, intrusion on your bodily autonomy that vaccinations do. They're temporary. They are... I know people subjectively have the belief that they are very onerous. I grew up differently, I guess, than some people in the United States, and I rationed my water, and I have experienced a different way of living in the world where I don't think a mask is that big of an inconvenience. But I, I respect I, that I think some you, people you are have very... To, you have to concede that for masks, it, it runs a... It's it's very individual specific, specific. I know there are plenty of people who don't mind wearing them at all, who think it's it's no big deal, and there are people who hate wearing them and consider it a big deal. I'm, I lean more in that direction. Vacci- at least for vaccination, there is a history of requiring vaccination in this country from a legal standpoint in various circumstances. Now, I still don't, I don't think this vaccine should be required in virtually any circumstance. But uh, I, there, where, there's no, where's the tradition of like, Forcing people to cover their faces for mass stretches. I don't understand tradi- why tradition don't is the metric that we should be using, as opposed to what's the bigger intrusion, what's the more permanent change to your to your well, body. Well, talking about whether it's an intrusion, I would look toward whether there's a history of requiring such a thing. Well, no, the history of requiring vaccines is because we've had significant pandemics and epidemics that have caused mass death and it's a, been a public health issue. Right. So even though it is a significant intrusion, it's it's proportionate to what it's trying to prevent. So the argument here with the COVID vaccine is that it is not necessarily proportionate because it's not preventing transmission in the way that people thought. And also it's only really necessary to prevent deaths in kind of niche marginal groups of people with preexisting conditions and things like that. That's why, and that, that is why the, the threshold for whether or not we should force vaccinations or mandate vaccinations is coming but down. That's the argument. I, I guess I, I wouldn't, uh, that doesn't correspond to whether we're calling it intrusive. I mean, obviously, right, the argument for the vaccine being more intrusive, I, and I don't, I don't want to rank these things against each other. They're both intrusive, and I'm, both, I'm against both of them. So, and, and maybe for different reasons. I, I, the, the vaccine, you can't even, if you can't justify it as a public health measure, which you really can't anymore, you can justify it as a personal health measure, uh, but then it should just be left to the individual. Um, the the, the masks, I think, are, again, it, it, runs, it runs the gamut. Some people are not having, some people don't have trouble with them, don't mind wearing them. Good, you can continue to wear them. Public health bureaucracy has now recognized the efficacy of one-way masking, so you can protect yourself that way. But other people who struggle to socialize or breathe or whatever it is while masked, I would I, I leave it also to their judgment, and I would be in that category. I don't like wearing it. Well, I'm sure you'll let us know in the comments whether or not a study showing that masking was effective would affect your willingness to wear a mask or whether or not you think it should be mandated in an educational context. We'll continue having this conversation and more right after this. Thank you. 
Dr. Fauci spoke at an event in Seattle this week where he joked with the masked up crowd about creating COVID through gain of function in his kitchen. We're at the epicenter of the initial outbreak. WA1, Washington 1, is considered the ancestral model strain. Um, this no, center. I, I developed the ancestral <laughs> model strain. <laughs> I created it. That's right. You, you let it loose. I was in my you, kitchen. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> you let it loose. Yeah. Right. Okay. Gain of function. Here we come. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you were here making arancha, many Italian meatballs, and that's a gain of function. Right. Okay. <laughs> All right. I mean, whatever. I guess. I don't mind joking about very controversial subjects. Uh, this, I, this could be one of those jokes that uh, grain of truth in the joke, perhaps. I mean, this is, what, this is what we're arguing about. This is what we're trying to get to the bottom of. Well, no. Did research, no, nobody thinks Fauci grew right. COVID or anything else. A little marinara, a little RNA. I was getting hungry listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> Italian, this could be the one thing uh, I like about uh, Dr. Fauci would be if he's a good Italian cook. <laughs> COVID um, blown up does look a little like a spicy meatball. It's, yeah, we're, <laughs> we are getting hungry. This is our last segment of the day. Lunchtime <laughs> is approaching. Uh, but, you know, the, the concern is that Fauci is this advocate of research that could have made a disease like COVID more transmissible, more contagious, and more, and more deadly. And he's, he's, he's defended on the show the idea of doing this research. He said that this research absolutely did not, could not have created COVID. This was, you know, an outbreak in a, a, that came from animals. And this is what we've, you know, discussed a million times. But the concern that we have is that we're not being careful enough about this research. It's being funded. It's not being tracked, et cetera. So to hear him joke about it, I don't know. What do you, it's probably fine to joke about it, but. So look, Definitely the point is that he's joking about it because the claim that he is so closely connected to it mm -hmm. that he would literally be doing it, I think is, he's reflecting that there's an overstatement and a kind of harp. Well, you're right. And by, and by going to that, by, by making it sound like that's what we're saying is that he literally did it. Yet then we can all say, oh, how ridiculous, right. because that is ridiculous, because that's now, not what's being alleged. You know, he's defended gain-of-function re research, and I think that there are, this is another one of those things I would defer to people who are in the know, is the issue with gain-of-function gain research, or is the issue that this research was being done with equipment that was nowhere close to the level of um, um, kind of lab protection that was necessary for how dangerous it was, that it was being done very close to highly populated civilian areas, wet markets and the like, where it, could, it had a high possibility of, of spreading. You know, you could have, there are differently, differently graded labs um, in terms of how much protective gear people are forced to make, how much um, kind of quarantine space there is, what the procedures are in terms of like preventing spread. Obviously, there's all kinds of research that happens in like the uh, Arctic or Antarctic, uh, so that's far away from human beings and animals and able to transmit spread at all. That's where they keep the last smallpox virus and a lot of these things that we don't want to get out. So there are obviously different levels of protection that can be done. And so that being the case, am I necessarily against gain of function research as a whole, I'm not sure there are obviously medical reasons why people do it to try to improve our world and be able to head off diseases like this at the pass. However, I do think you're right that it feels like a, a somewhat uh, bad faith dodge 
for him to go to the idea that he is personally being accused of doing this as opposed to covering up culpability and, for those who were doing it. And that's actually a question I have and a question I've never had answered, including by Dr. Fauci when he was on the show and I asked him this directly, what is the benefit of doing the research? What medical uh, insight or innovations do we gain from doing this kind of research? Because the kinds of therapeutics and vaccines we have uh, for COVID have nothing to do with that kind of research. So I have not heard anyone conclusively state, look, here are the risks, but we've decided that these advantages, these advantages outweigh the risks. What are these advantages? Well, I've never heard them articulated. I, I thought um, from doing an interview uh, about this about a year ago with Thomas Frank that the argument was that it helps you to go ahead and develop vaccines for diseases like COVID that have not but it yet didn't. Emerged. Our vaccines do not at all derive from that research. Well, but is that always the case? Does this particular vaccine that happened to have been related to gain-of-function research, or is it always the case that gain-of-function research is not? I mean, it seems it would be odd if there were no uh, medically indicated reason to pursue this. Right, that's my research. concern. It's just a bunch of scientists, uh, you know, doing kind of... You, you know, you didn't stop to think about, you only did it because you could, you didn't stop to think about what you did it because you should have. Like there's no, it's, it's just kind of research or experimentation for experimentation's sake. Well, it's about studying the, how these viruses behave, yeah. how transmissible they are, those kinds of things, you know, to model it out before it actually occurs in the I mean, knowledge for knowledge's sake, I guess, is, is, uh, is fine. But if you, if you carry even a small risk of the extinction of humanity. So this is from the National Library of Medicine, National Institute for Biotechnology Information. Uh, it says that gain-of-function research involves, we know what it is, such research when conducted by responsible scientists usually aims to improve understanding of disease-causing agents, their interaction with human hosts, and or their potential to cause pandemics. The ultimate objective of such, such research is to better inform public health and preparedness efforts and or development of medical countermeasures. Right, but that's pretty nonspecific. Well, it's about trying to develop diseases beforehand and trying to understand. To. So, for example, I don't know if what you're saying. I, I'm I saying not... put, the, put the pharmaceutical on the table that we invented this because we made this virus more powerful. Well, well au contraire, look at something like, um, I mean, the vaccine that was ultimately developed for COVID was able to be developed so quickly in part because it relied on previous uh, vaccines for other similar kinds of SARS uh, mm -hmm. variants. Um, you know, the monkeypox vaccine that people are having difficulty rolling out and getting to folks. Um, folks are saying that you can also use the smallpox vaccine in lieu of it, although it is not good for immunocompromised right. patients, so they prefer not to, but there is some overlapping functionality there. So I do think the idea is that you know, these are building blocks and having a better understanding of the vaccine might be helpful. Now, this article goes on to question the ethics of it, given the cost benefits and analysis of it. If the risks are so high and to your point, the gain, the right. I'm not, the, not, I'm the not saying we, we so should not limited. study virus. Of course, we should study viruses. It's do we have to manipulate them yeah. in such a way where they pose a greater threat to us to better understand how they infect people? Do you see how that's that? Well, they, they yeah. were they were able to infect people originally. We're talking about research that actually makes them. Uh, more contagious. But again, so maybe I think there's a. For this reason, Barack Obama put a pause on this kind of research yeah. and funding back in 2014. And so obviously there's an ongoing conversation about that. Wasn't that the it. thing Obama was like most afraid of when he was departing his presidency? Was that like, holy crap, like a pandemic epidemic would be, we're just not prepared for it and it would be catastrophic? And there has been 
I'm sorry to say, some you know, kind of deep, there has been defunding of the kind of stockpiles that we had. That's part of why we don't have a lot of the um, monkeypox vaccine. We used to have scores and scores of it, mm-hmm. and we just let it expire. There is a way that, that I'm sorry. Idea. Like, sometimes you got to spend money to protect the community for an eventuality that may or may not happen. May or may not happen. And you can sit there and say that's government waste and it wasn't a good use Let's of time. Government until this seems like a better actually, a use of government funds than a lot of things we're spending money on right now. Um, yeah, well, I certainly can Ukraine, agree. No. I can certainly agree with you on that, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tomorrow on Rising, we pass the baton over to Ryan Grimm and Emily Jashinsky. They'll be taking a deep dive into the FBI's politicization of the last several decades with reporter Lee Fang. Oh, that sounds good. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Back here, same time, same place. (laughs) Bye-bye.